New Testament from the letter to the Hebrews. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and goat, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtain, obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today's sermon will be... I'll pray first. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Today's sermon is all about this sentence, verse 14 of chapter 9 of Hebrews. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? Have you ever noticed that if you feel bad about something you did in relation to another person, it really hinders your relationship with them? An uneasy or unclean conscience really gets in the way of openness and freedom. And especially so with God. In fact, our conscience today is about being cleansed of a bad conscience before God. And so being free to worship him. Having a cleansed conscience to serve God with openness and freedom. So this sermon is for two kinds of people. One is for you if you feel uncomfortable getting close to God because of a continued niggling sense of an unclean conscience. Or perhaps even more than that. 
The words of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14 are for you. Or you may be the other kind and haven't a problem at all. You may be one of those who says with the, the last words of 19th century German poet Heinrich Heine, God will forgive me, set on metier. It is his job. <laughs> well, which means you actually do have a problem because there's a difference between a cleansed conscience and a complacent conscience. Between a cleansed conscience and the conscience of somebody in denial. The words of Hebrews 9, 1 to 14 are for you as well. As we've been learning, Hebrews is written to a first century community, synagogue you might say, of Italian Jews. Don't be surprised there were Jews living in Italy. In the first century, 80% of all Jews lived outside of Judea and Galilee. What makes these different is that they were Jews who believed in Jesus. They were Jewish believers in Jesus. And they're struggling. They're struggling because they are Jewish believers in Jesus, actually. And life's hard for them. So much so they are getting worn out and being tempted to give up. And this is a written homily, this not really a letter, really, it's a written homily by their pastor, unknown to us, but apparently well known to them. Encourage them to persevere. And one way he does this is to unpack for them the wonderful provision made in the Lord Jesus Christ for them. Now, we've also been discovering that to the Hebrews comes from a thought world quite different from our own. This is partly because the writer is first century and we're 21st century. Partly because he's a Greek-speaking Jewish believer, and we're not. And partly because he knows and uses the scriptures somewhat differently than we do. And this different thought world of, to the Hebrews takes some getting used to. You may find it difficult. I've found it, if you excuse the word, rather fun. <laughs> what I mean by that is to... It's something very stimulating to... Hear the great truths of the Christian faith, which you might already know, but express in ways that are so different and at first somewhat strange, as I think you'll find the case today. I've been in the ordained ministry over 46 years, and yet in preparing this sermon, I found things I'd never thought before. As I said, today's passage is Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. It's about how the sacrifice of Jesus cleanses the consciences of believers so they can worship the living God without hindrance. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you whether, whether arriving at this truth by taking the journey through the strange world of Hebrews was worth it for you. Why not just jump straight to the conclusion? We'll see. Let's get going. Now, first, I want to lay down two foundation points of thought, sorry, two foundation points in the thought world of Hebrews that are important for us this morning, two. The first foundation point for the thought of Hebrews is this. It is no straightforward matter for God to dwell among his people, for humans to be in relationship with God. It is no straightforward matter. Why? The issue is the very godness of God, his holiness, his inherent holiness, his holy, searing, burning holiness. How can God's holiness dwell amid mortal humans? especially prone as they are to, to both moral and physical unholiness. As we learned a couple of weeks ago, God provides how this can be by what I've called the three specials. 
It's a special place, one. Two, the special procedures. Three, the special person. God dwells in a special place where his holiness can dwell amongst the unholy. There are special procedures, that is, sacrifices, gifts, which are offered, which build and maintain the relationship between the holy God and his people. And thirdly, there is the special person, the high priest, who functions on behalf of the people in relating to God. The special place, special provision, special procedures rather, special person. That's the, that's the first foundation point of the thought world of Hebrews. The second foundation point we heard last Sunday, and that's this. In the scriptural story of God's relation to his people, there are two different stages to that story. Two different stages. The second stage, building on the first stage. In Hebrews 8, we met what was called the first covenant, and then we heard about a new covenant. They are the two stages. Covenant is a word that means a formal agreement setting up a pattern of relationship. One follows from the other. So this Bible is not just flat. There are two stages of God's story, as it were. Now, here's important, though. In the world of Hebrews, it's the same threefold arrangements, the special place, special procedure, special person, in both the first and the second covenants. The same threefold arrangement in both the first and the second covenants. In both covenants, there is a holy place where God and humans meet. In both covenants, there is sacrifice. In both covenants, we have the requirement for a priest. Except they are so different in their levels and effectiveness. One is on earth, one is in heaven. One is limited, one is perfect. Which is the point of Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. You can summarise the whole 14 verses like this. If the first one is effective in a limited way, how much more is the second one in its perfect way? And what the writer does is he describes what goes on in the first covenant in verses 1 to 14, and then how much better is the second one in verses 11 through 14. First, 1 to 10. He begins speaking about the special place where God and humans meet. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1, quote, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. Here is a drawing of the tabernacle in the desert, how it was to be done. Israel camps around, and at the centre of their camp is this structure where God comes. Here's a closer picture, or drawing rather. It was, as you can see there, a courtyard with a tent in it. As well as that, there's an altar for burnt offerings and a big water basin for washing. But the writer to the Hebrews is more interested in the tent itself and especially its two-room structure. I don't, I don't know if can you see this little, little red light? I don't know if you can. Sort of, it's, I know it should be bigger. Here's how he described it from verse 2. I quote, A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. That's that bit there. There's the lampstand in this drawing. There's the table with the bread. Behind the second curtain, there's curtain number one, curtain number two. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. Literally in the Greek, the holy of holies, which is very holy. <laughs> 
mega holy, holy of holies, in which he writes, was the golden order of incense. There's some confusion about that where that is, but there it is there or in here. And especially, he says, the ark, the golden, the above, oh, sorry, and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Now, scholars are not quite sure what a cherubim looked like. Here's, I think, a likely drawing. Um, something like a human a winged sphinx with human faces, bodies of a lion and big wings. Although in the one in the most holy place, the wings were so big, they touched the edge of the tent. So that's slightly underdrawn and they touched themselves. So these strange figures and there on the top of the, of the box is a gold lid. And that gold lid is called in NIV, the atonement cover or other versions, the mercy seat. That's, that's the very place. And God was thought, I think, to be enthroned above those cherubim, above that place there. Back to the, um, back to the er earlier drawing. Now, and to quote Hebrews 9 verse 5, we cannot discuss these things in detail now, which may be a relief to you. <laughs> well, that's the special place, but the writer's more interested in the special, what goes on in the special place. The, what I call the special procedures performed by the special person. What goes on there? Verse 6, quote, When everything has been arranged like this, the priests enter regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. They're regularly day by day. Oh, don't worry about it. In, in, in the first room. Verse 7, But only the high priest enters the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So the, the first room, the holy place, that's a daily coming. But the second room, only once a year, the high priest with blood. Now that's a reference to what you heard in the first reading, the day of atonement. You may know it in its Hebrew word, Yom Kippur. Yom is Hebrew for day, Kippur, atonement or cleansing, something that that word means. And we, we heard in that reading, page 92 of the NIV, that Aaron, Moses' brother, who is the first high priest, must bathe himself, put on the sacred garments before he makes his once a year entrance into the most holy place. Then two animals, a bull and a goat, are to be killed, slaughtered. However, this is important, it's not the slaughter of the animal as such that makes it a sacrifice. It's not the killing of the animal that makes a sacrifice. What makes it a sacrifice is the offering of its blood in the most holy place. <clears throat> that's, that's the sacrifice. In fact, in the scriptures, no animals are killed on altars. Altars are for the offering of the blood or, or, or the big one outside, the burning of the, of the meat. And here's a description of that sacrifice in Leviticus 16, which we heard. First, the description of the blood of the bull, which is offered for Aaron and his family. Verse 14 of Leviticus 16, I quote. <clears throat> he is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. Then the blood of the goat, verses 15 and 16. Then he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain to do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. 
In this way, he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. You may be struck by the fact that the atonement is made for the most holy place itself or to, to, or to purify the most holy place. That's, and you may think, how's that? Well, it's because the most holy place has been defiled by the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Their, their uncleanness and rebellion has defiled the most holy place. And of course, if the most holy place remains defiled, the holy God can't dwell there. He can't dwell among his people. And so therefore, the atonement is made, rather odd to us, the cleansing is done of the most holy place as well as of the people. Now, the writer of the Hebrew is aware of this logic that may seem strange to us, but the Hebrew does not. In fact, in the next section, next week, he applies the very same logic of Leviticus to the heavenly tabernacle. We'll meet in just a moment. I'm reading from Hebrews 9, 22 and 23. The writer says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the earthly things to be purified with these sacrifices. That's the earthly tabernacle. But the heavenly things with, much, with better sacrifices than these. So next week we'll learn that the blood of Jesus' sacrifice cleanses the heavenly dwelling place where God meets man. More from that from Justin next week. Back to his description of the arrangements under the first covenant. The writer sees something rather significant in the two rooms. It's rather dense, I think, the deeper meaning, but it's about there being two ages. I'll read verse 6, 7 again, then go on to verse 8 and 9. 6 and 7 again. When everything has been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that the people had committed in ignorance. And he adds, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration, the word is literally parable, parabole, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Now, I know it's quite dense, but he seems to be saying that, that um, the key point anyway is this. Under the first covenant, the regulations are only effective for limited cleansing. They don't cleanse the conscience. They only cleanse what we might call physical or ritual defilement. They don't touch what we might call moral defilement. That's what he says in verse 10. They are only a matter of food and drink and various, you know, the ceremonial washings, literally just the word baptisms or washings, and external regulations applying to the time of the new order. There's a new order coming and things will be different. He's not saying they're not effective, just they're only limited effectiveness. In contrast to the second, the second, that's the old covenant, right? Or the first covenant. Now the second from verse 11. But he says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. Now, that's a different tent 
a different special place. Christ went through to the heavenly tent, what the writer calls the greater and more perfect tabernacle, which is not made with human hands, that is, not part of this creation. It's another way of speaking what is already mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 8. The true sanctuary set up by the Lord, not a mere human being. So there's an earthly sanctuary, but there's also, and that's only patterned on the real one, the heavenly sanctuary. And that's where Christ went. Where God meets humans in another order of reality. And Christ entered it as high priest. The, son, the divine son of God became high priest by first being made human in every way, by second, tasting death for everyone, then third, by having been made perfect, that is, raised to indestructible resurrection life, being designated as by God as high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, we heard that a couple of weeks ago. He is high priest now in his perfect humanity. In his perfect humanity. And what does this high priest do in the heavenly holy of holies? Verse 12. He did not enter with the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all with his own blood, thus obtaining an eternal redemption. You may have noticed instead of with his own blood, the NIV has by his own blood. Now that's grammatically possible, but I don't think makes really much sense here. As we've seen, the priest takes blood with him as he enters the holy place. He doesn't enter the place through blood. So I prefer the reading of the New Revised Standard Version or the English Standard Version. He did not enter with the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. That once for all, we'll hear more about both those things next week, but that's crucial. Once for all, with his own blood. And the point is, by making, taking his own blood into that most holy place, he obtains an eternal redemption, a perfect redemption for all time. It's the same logic as the, as the first covenant, but just so much more effective. And that's the point of the powerful contrast in the next two verses, verse 13 and 14, which brings our passage to its climax. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who were, un, who were defiled, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, literally so their flesh is purified. Fair enough. Those who are physically defiled have their flesh purified by the various ceremonies of the old covenant. The sacrifices do work. They work as far as they go, which is not that far. But... Verse 14, how much more then, he says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The sacrifices of the new covenant does work as far as it goes, only it goes all the way, goes all the way. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. 
These are cleansing of conscience, not just of body. Let's see where we've gone. There's an old and there's a new, right? Both deal with the problem of God and human beings. Mortal humans subject to defilement. There's a special place in both. There's a special procedures in both. There's a special person in both. The old has a special place, the tabernacle on earth. The special procedures, sacrifices of bulls and goats. The special person, a series of mortal high priests. The new has a special place, the greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven. The special procedures, the sacrifice of the blood of him who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. That is, offered his life to God. And the special person, the great high priest, the son who has been made perfect forever. And it's that sacrifice that can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, literally from dead works, so that we may serve the living God. Two points. The phrase acts that live to lead to death, literally dead works, has been used before. We met that in chapter 6, verse 1. Oh boy, that's not a good idea. For those at home, I just dropped my notes. <laughs> and where he writes that he will not lay again the foundation of repentance from, quote, acts that lead to death. That's, that's uh, Hebrews 6 1. Not acts that lead to death. That is, acts that lead to death mean moral, deadly moral defilement. These are, these are death delivering. Just being physically defiled is one thing, but this moral defilement is fatal. And therefore to be cleansed from acts that lead, to cleanse from dead works means to be cleansed from fatal moral defilement. Cleanse our hearts, in other words. Cleanse our consciences, for other words. That's the first point. Second point, having our consciences cleansed from fatal defilement is not the purpose of, not the end point. It's not a cleansed conscience, oh, what a relief. Or a cleansed conscience, now I can feel so good about myself. No, no, no. It's a cleansed conscience that I may serve the living God. That's what it's about. That I may serve the living God. It's never, off you go, you're clean now. It's, no, here you come, you're clean now. And the word serve, note the contrast, by from dead works to serve the living God. It's, it's a death to life cleansing. And the word serve in serve the living God is a word that can, can be used for worship, to worship the living God. So we're still in the world of worship. But now it is a worship with an openness and freedom because our consciences have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so, and this is a great theme of Hebrews, we'll come to this again and again, we can approach God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, boldly, boldly. What a great place to arrive at. Let me end with this question for you then. Was all this worth it? I mean, not where we've ended up, that's great, but getting there, we took a strange journey, didn't we, through tabernacles, priests, sacrifices, blood, covenants. Would it not have just been simpler, and frankly saved a lot of your time on a Sunday morning, to have just said, God is ready to forgive you. God is ready to forgive you. Would, 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 that, would that be a good substitute for this whole sermon? Some are nodding, thinking. Maybe, but I don't know. 
I don't know. I've been struck by a comment by a Scottish theologian from the beginning of last century, P.T. Forsyth, no relation. He said this, the feeble gospel preaches God is ready to forgive. The mighty gospel preaches God has redeemed. Give that to you again. The feeble gospel preaches God is ready to forgive. The mighty gospel preaches God has redeemed. Now, I think he's onto something. Being forgiven just like that is one thing. Being cleansed by the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, is quite another, quite another. There is something so much more substantial, so much more objective, so much more confidence building about the latter. The feeble gospel preaches God is ready to forgive. The mighty gospel preaches God has redeemed. Now, I do not really understand, to be frank with you, why all of this was needed. Why couldn't God just say, no worries? But I do know this. This is the way God has ordered it. And it's not arbitrary. It flows out of who he is in his love and his holiness. And I know there's something wonderful in my conscience being quietened by knowing, as it were, that so is God's. That knowing that your conscience being quietened by knowing, as it were, so is God's conscience quietened. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Amen.